you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time of remembrance at uh, the Lord's table. Thank you for the body and the blood that was sacrificed so freely, so graciously, so generously, so righteously, obeying you, your every word, your every command. We thank you for the glories of our champion, the Lord Jesus, conquering all of our enemies that we could not conquer for ourselves. Lord, thank you that you have uh, made a way, the way of your blood, the way of your resurrection. We glory in it. Father, we pray this morning for the needs of our church family. Our uh, health needs are, are many. I want to especially lift up Silas Zip this morning and, and uh, his family. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would just continue to heal his body, that he might be able to come home to his family on Tuesday as planned. We ask for your grace and your blessing on that. Lord, others who have been uh, sick, we ask for your healing hand upon them. We pray for protection uh, from viruses and illnesses. We pray that if we do bef- uh, uh, are beset by them, Lord, that we would bear up under it with grace, with uh, love for you, with trust in you, uh, that we would recognize that we're in a fallen world and that these bodies will be injured, they will get sick, they will eventually die. So, Lord, help us to live uh, in reality, always looking to you for all things. We pray for your provision uh, through your people for our church. Lord, that you would inspire us and encourage us to give as you have freely given to us. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Several years ago, uh, many of us from here at church, I think there were several kids with us. It, it may have even been part of Mystery Week. We were up at Enchanted Enchanted Rock, uh, doing doing a hike, and and uh, we had several people. I think there's at least twenty of us, and we had uh, I think already gone up to the top and come down. And we were going to hike hike around, and so if you're at Enchanted Rock and you're looking at it, you can go kind of between the rock and some other stuff over to the left. And so we were doing that on this trail, and several of us had already passed by when someone in the group discovered that there was a rattlesnake uh, not three or four feet from the trail. And many of us had had literally almost stepped on it already. And so as we were then aware, we stopped, you know, and as the rest of the group was coming, we were like, careful, careful, keep your distance, there's a snake. And people were like, where? (laughs) We're like, right there. I mean, three feet away, people going, I don't see it. And then finally, there would be a movement and oh, I see it. The snake completely blended in to the rocks and his environment like a chameleon, able to change colors, depending on where the, what the background is, able to blend in. That's a picture of many people who hide among believers in the church. It is amazing, like that snake and scary, how unbelievers can hide in churches among believers, how an unbeliever can hide out in a marriage behind their spouse, how teenagers can hide in a family conforming outwardly, but inwardly rebelling, waiting for that day of supposed freedom. You know, an unbeliever can have tremendous religious interest, tremendous religious interest without repenting and actually following Christ. Unbelievers love creation They talk of God and country. Unbelievers can be patriotic, politically conservative, pro-life, church-going, and still unrepentant. 
An unbeliever can be exercised of their personal demons like drug addiction or alcohol addiction and still be unrepentant. Unbelievers can clean up their lives and still be unrepentant. We need to remember that rehab is not necessarily repentance. That sobriety is not always equal to salvation. A Christian upbringing is not equal to being a Christian. Unbelievers can hide among believers. Jesus will talk about this eventually. We get there in the book of Matthew when he talks about tares among the wheat. So whether it was 2,000 years ago or now, unbelievers can hide like chameleons among us, fooling, of course, everyone but God. And in today's text, fooling everyone but God in the flesh. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and the words of Jesus in verses 38 to 45. As some unbelievers trying to hide out among followers were, of course, not fooling the Son of God. Follow along as I read our text. Matthew 12, 38 to 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Title this morning is The Profile of an Unbeliever. These Pharisees and scribes come up to Jesus, and in the Greek, they speak six words to him, to which he responds with 170. Someone said six words to you and you responded with 170 or you got a text of six words and you texted back 170. What's going on there? They just touched a nerve, right? When an unbeliever demands a sign from God with no intent to repent, apparently it touches a divine nerve. Some key observations of what I've just read to you. These are all words of Jesus, mostly in this response, starting in verse 39. Some key observations. We're still in the same response to the same Pharisees who had rejected him previously in this chapter and blasphemed the Holy Spirit when Jesus did an incredible miracle proving he is the Messiah. And they said, you did that by the power of Beelzebub. So we're still in that same discourse, that same encounter 
But this time, their unbelief comes with a new wrinkle. The tone here is what I call blunt force trauma. Jesus' tone is edgy, salty, powerful, convicting, rebuking, and warning. And there's something very important, and the reason why we're going all the way to verse 45 is because this passage has bookends. It has verbal bookends, and the bookends is what Jesus calls this evil generation. You see it in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation, and then you see it again in the last words of verse 45, this evil generation. That serves for us to tell us what the paragraph is, where the main thought lies. Jesus is not into sugarcoating. Jesus tells it just like it is. And when they ask him for a sign, his first words to them are, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Ouch. No sugarcoating allowed. This morning I aim to show you some traits of unbelievers with a prayer that the merely religious and the merely outwardly moral person among us sees their need to repent. So we're going to look at four traits in this profile, four traits of an unbeliever. Number one, they often crave a sign from God. How ironic. Unbelievers craving a sign from God. Look back again at verses 38 and the first part of 39. Some scribes and Pharisees, these were the legalists, these were the the scholars, the teachers, the, the ones who upheld the law and guarded it and added to it, they say to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a miracle from you. But he answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. They begin with really what is false respect, teacher. They're patronizing him. This is a sign of unbelief because every single time someone uses this in the gospel of Matthew it's always an unbeliever it's this false respect and their demand in verse 38 is audacious to say the least it's uppity it's prideful it's demanding they're saying to him prove yourself to us now We will, we want, we wish to see a miracle from you. Perform for us. Give us a private showing of your miraculous powers. Now, if Jesus had done it, they probably would have charged him with sorcery because they're looking for a reason to kill him, to stone him. But it's also very ironic, isn't it, that they want to see a sign from him at this juncture, (laughs) right? What's just happened? He's just done a sign. He cast out demons and healed a man of being... Uh, mute and blind he's just done that for them and they say we want to see a sign from you what's going on they're basically saying by this statement we reject every other sign we've seen up to this point and they have seen a lot of miracles that's why this is so ironic they have been privy to the light of God shining on this earth to a generation unlike any before or since And the only thing that they responded with to the sign that he's already given them is what? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So how ironic this is that they demand yet another sign. They're just like unbelievers who have blessings all over their lives and they want to see evidence for God. They're just like unbelievers standing at the Grand Canyon looking at the stars and the moon and, and, and doubting that there is a God. 
They're, they're like an unbeliever who's been healed of a disease and goes back to the very behavior that caused the problem in the first place. Here they are rejecting this signs of God all around them as insufficient. The reality is their sign seeking is a sign of their unbelief. And so Jesus says, no, <laughs> we demand a sign from you. No, you're evil for even asking for it. You're an adulterous generation for even requesting it. And he gives them this familiar then Old Testament rebuke. Here's Jesus, the prophet, sounding like Hosea, the prophet, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, who would say to their forefathers, the nation of Israel, you are a spiritually adulterous generation. And Jesus is doing the same thing. You're unfaithful to God as he rebukes them. So our first trait of an unbeliever is that they will often crave signs from God, proof of God, evidence that he exists, making demands upon him. And Jesus labels this as wicked and as spiritually unfaithful. Beloved, where unbelief exists, you will find people who crave signs, not submission to Christ. They want signs, not submission. They want to be judge and jury, not be judged and acquitted by the holy God of the universe. So many examples we could talk about. I'll give you a few this morning of how this might play out in our day and age. How many unbelievers are there among charismatics and the word of faith crowds who are clamoring for fresh revelation, clamoring after tongues, miracles, instead of Christ and the Bible, instead of simple devotion to Christ through the word of God? How many unbelievers devour the best-selling books like these. This is what Google tells us are the best-selling books on the topic of heaven. They devour these books. Heaven is for real. Imagine heaven to heaven and back and 90 minutes in heaven. How many of the people who read those kinds of books are actually unbelievers? And they read those books and they believe those books and they love every word of those books while they neglect their Bible as something dull and old and boring. How many unbelievers line up at healing crusades seeking a sign that God loves them, seeking a sign out of desperation that God cares about them, that God knows about their disease or their infirmity? How many people go to so-called worship events and it's nothing more than craving any, an intense emotion, an intense feeling instead of craving after God himself? There is a difference. I ask this question, why do so many Catholics crave visions of Mary and other saints as signs from God? And why do white evangelicals seek signs of God's love and financial blessings and not in Christ and a holy life? See, that's the trap we would fall into. We would be quick to say, oh, if I am financially blessed, that is God's endorsement on my life, God's endorsement on, on my behavior. God is happy with me. God approves of me. 
Instead of finding God's love and approval in Christ and in a holy life, regardless of my financial situation. Just some of the many ways that unbelievers can be craving after signs, evidences, proof. I sum it up this way. If you constantly need God to prove himself to you, that is a sure sign of unbelief. Let me say it again. If you constantly need God to prove himself to you, to prove his love to you, to prove his concern for you, if that's something you're always clamoring after and there's always you're just not sure, that is a sign of unbelief. As we continue in the profile, we come to number two. Number one, they crave signs from God. And yet, number two, they ignore the sign of all signs. They ignore the sign of all signs. Go back to verse 39. So first Jesus says to them, no. But then he says, yes. I'm not going to give you a sign. On the other hand, I will give you a sign. It is the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, it's Jonah 1.17, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, affirming the historicity of Jonah, that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, referred to here in the Septuagint as a sea monster. Here is Jesus Christ believing the story of Jonah. Here's Jesus Christ saying that he was there in that belly and he would come out. And so will the son of man, speaking of himself, of course, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So after the no comes the yes. And the yes is a cryptic sign of Jonah. Now, as Jesus says this, it's his first mention of his death in the gospel of Matthew. And it's very doubtful anyone, including his disciples, would have understood what he was talking about. This is cryptic by design. And of course, ironically, the unbeliever comes to this verse and says, ha ha, I found it. The Bible has errors. It says three days and three nights. He wasn't three days and three nights. See, I found it. Now I don't have to pay attention to what the verse is actually talking about. Right? Such irony. Unbelievers come along and They take this verse and they say, yes, the Bible contradicts itself. Or well-meaning Christians say, well, my goodness, look at this verse. We've got to change our date of the crucifixion. There's no way it was Friday. We've got to move it back. It must have been Thursday or maybe even some reckonings it was Wednesday. And of course, all of that is unnecessary. Let me explain what's going on in these words of Jesus. This is a figure of speech to emphasize three days. Just like in the Old Testament, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. That emphasizes 40. Or Moses was on the Mount of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. It was 40. It's a way of emphasizing something by repetition. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is a figure of speech not to be taken literally. And it's also the way that the Jews and the Hebrews reckoned time. A 26-hour block of time for a Hebrew could be three days and three nights just 26 hours because if it's part of a day they counted the day and so Friday is day one Saturday is day two Sunday is day three he was in the heart of the earth for three days emphatically here is Jesus then his first mention of his death which is to come 
You want a sign, you evil and adulterous generation? I will give you a sign. I will be dead for three days and three nights, emphatically, in the heart of the earth, implying implying that it will not last forever. Just as Jonah didn't stay in that fish, he came out, so Jesus will come out. This is one of those sayings of Jesus that the, the apostles surely wouldn't understand until after the resurrection. Can you imagine the flood of light that came upon them on the other side of the resurrection? It's like, oh, oh yeah, remember that? Oh, remember that one? Remember that one? Oh, it all makes sense now as the light dawns on them. Second trait in the profile of an unbeliever is while they are craving for God to prove his love for them, they ignore the sign of all signs. You want a miracle that will change your life forever? Do you want proof of God's presence, God's power, and God's love for you? Oh, sign seeker, it's already happened. Amen? We've sung about it. We've celebrated it. We've rehearsed it. It's already happened. A man bore God's wrath and lived to tell about it. That is your sign. A man, fully God and fully man, went to a cross and died in our place, was buried, and rose again. That's the sign you can bank your life on. That's the proof that God is powerful. That's the proof that God is present in human existence. That is proof that God loves you. That is the miracle that you need in your life. We don't need to be seeking paltry, pitiful, shallow signs when God has already given us this monumentous sign of all signs that can never be surpassed. The death and resurrection of the Son of God. The sign of all signs is the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth, but is no more. He is there no more. He is risen. He is risen. He is alive forever. That is your sign. So do not ignore the greatest sign that will ever be given while you seek inferior evidence for God. It's actually pathetic to do so. It's actually evil, Jesus says. It's wicked to crave a paltry sign of God's involvement in your life while you're ignoring that Jesus rose from the grave. Trait number three, as a result of ignoring the sign of all signs, unbelievers are condemned by those who respond without signs. They're judged, they're pronounced guilty, they're made to feel guilty even by those who respond to the gospel without ever having a single sign other than the sign of signs, other than the risen Christ. So it goes like this. The unbeliever says to God, God, give me a sign that you are real and I will repent and follow Jesus. And God says, well, first, I already have. Second, why should I give you a sign when millions of people respond without a sign? Look at verse 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. God's saying, why should I give you a sign when Ninevites repented without signs? Here was Jonah, the only Old Testament prophet sent to Gentiles. Here we are again, Gentiles, right? 
A Jewish man, Matthew, writes a Jewish gospel to Jewish believers, and it's just loaded with these evidences that God loves Gentiles, reminding us that the church was a mix of both. So Jonah goes to these Gentiles, these Ninevites, and they weren't just any Gentiles. They were notorious pagans. They were violent. They were terrible sinners. These were not kind people. These were not nice people. They were terrible people. And God sends Jonah to them, and Jonah goes reluctantly. Jonah was disobedient. That's why he ended up in the belly of the sea monster in the first place. And so he finally gets his head on right, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches God's judgment. And what happens? But a massive revival breaks out, which is exactly what Jonah expected would happen among his enemies. It's why he didn't want to go. But here's the point. A sinful man, a reluctant prophet goes to a faraway group of pagan Gentiles and does nothing more than talk. He does not perform a miracle. There's no lightning bolts from heaven. There's no visions from God. There's no voices from the sky. There's nothing like that at all. And a massive revival breaks out. Repentance from the throne to the lowest in the land, clothing themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And he didn't even want to be there. Here were unreachable Gentiles, and now they could see what these Pharisees can't see. And it's right in front of them, the signs of Jesus. What's the point of this example of the men of Nineveh? There was a great response despite no signs and from an infinitely inferior source. Something greater than Jonah is here. Second example, Queen of Sheba, verse 42, the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. So where Jonah goes to the Ninevites, now we have the queen of the south coming to Israel. And she too will be a witness against this generation of Jesus because she came from the ends of the earth. It was Africa. And she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the king, And behold, check this out, something greater than Solomon is here. The greater prophet is here, the greater king is here. Queen of Sheba. She comes from Africa to Asia. She comes to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She hears it. She sees it. And then she says, oh, how blessed are you, King Solomon. How blessed are your attendants who hear your wisdom. And how blessed is Israel. And how blessed is the God of Israel, says the Queen of the South. She traveled far. She traveled long. These Pharisees didn't travel at all. Jesus came to their hometown. She sought God's wisdom from sinful Solomon. We know how he ended his life. They are rejecting God's holy son. They are rejecting wisdom personified. They are rejecting the one who is full of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, the point is the same. The Queen of Sheba made a great response despite no signs, no miracles, and from an infinitely inferior source. The bottom line is then those who respond without signs condemn those who won't. Those who respond to the gospel without signs condemn those who will not. I love this phrase when he says, something greater than Solomon is here. 
And the right translation is the word something, not someone. This is in the neuter in Greek, not the masculine. Jesus is not only referring to himself. It's broader than himself. It includes himself, but it's broader than himself. What he is saying is the entire reality of my coming is greater than Solomon and greater than Jonah. My my teaching, my presence, my person, my power, my kingdom offer, all of this, the entire reality of it is better than anything that's come before me. So we have an infinitely better source giving signs and wonders left and right, condemning the Pharisees because certainly something greater was there. Let me just get to the point then. If you are seeking signs this morning, you need to ask yourself these three questions. If you're seeking signs for God to prove himself to you, to, to do something amazing so that you will believe in him and follow him and devote yourself to him, you need to ask yourself these three questions. Number one, why do I deserve a sign? Why do I deserve a sign? Number two, Why is God's word not enough for me? Why is the Bible not sufficient? And then number three, why do I seek something beyond the resurrection? Those are the three questions you need to ponder if you're a sign seeker. Now, where numbers one, two, and three are true, then number four must surely follow. It will inevitably follow. The fourth trait of unbelievers is that they inevitably go from bad to worse. That's the point of 43 to 45. I've already read it. You can scan it again. It's a parable. This is not doctrine that you would build an elaborate demonology on. Okay, did you hear, did you catch that? You don't go to a passage like this and say, well, this is how I'm going to build my whole doctrine on demons and Satan. That's not what this is. This is a parable. This is an analogy or an illustration. It's a story that's making a single and a simple point. The story is this unclean spirit is in a man and he, and he's, he's somehow exercised out of this man. We're not told how or when, and, and he leaves this man and he passes through some dry places seeking rest, which might imply that they just can't enter anybody they want to. And he's seeking rest and he can't find it. And, uh, verse 44, I love this. Well, I don't love it. It's just very insightful. He says, I will return to what? My house. Hmm. That person I left, that's my, wow, that's that's like imperialistic right there. That's my house. I'm going to go back. That's what the demon says. From which I came, and when it comes, he gets there, and he finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Wow. (laughs) He goes and finds seven more, so now there's a total of eight, and these are more wicked than he is, which is really a puzzling statement in and of itself because they're thoroughly and completely wicked and irredeemable. And they go in and they dwell there. They live there. They make themselves at home. Now the punchline. Now the simple point. The last state of that man is worse than the first. He's worse off now with these eight demons than he was when he just had one. That's the point. And Jesus says, I say all of that to say that's the way it's going to be with this evil generation. This generation of Israelites are going to go from bad to worse And that's the way it always is with unbelievers. 
for believers, we always are going from bad to, to good to better to best. Everything's always better for us as we move forward. It's always looking brighter. The future is always better for us until it ends in glory. But for the other believers, it's a, it's a descent. It's a descent until it ends in eternal punishment, the worst of the worst. Now, what is the problem here? Why do, just from this parable, why do unbelievers go from bad to worse? Or why does this individual in the parable go from bad to worse? There's one problem here in the parable. Main problem. What is it? It's the word unoccupied. That is the problem. The demon left, but he is now empty. The demon left, but God hasn't entered Okay, that's the problem. God is still not welcome. The man was exercised of a demon, but there's no regeneration. There's no repentance. There's no real change in his life. He's unoccupied. There's no Holy Spirit dwelling in him, changing him, conforming him to the image of Christ. He's just a human now without a demon. And while he's unoccupied, he sweeps his house and he puts everything in order. He just swept. It's not a deep clean. This is a suit and tie on a guilty defendant. This is paint over rotten wood. This is moralism. This is works righteousness. This is clean up your own life. Get everything in order. Sweep it and make it tidy and make it presentable to public. This is the unbeliever hiding in church. This is the lost preacher or the seminary professor who doesn't know Christ, who lives a sinful, ungodly life. He's unoccupied is the problem when we must be occupied by nothing short of the very Spirit of God. And so this parable is is serving multiple purposes. It serves the purpose of making the simple point of you go from bad to worse as an unbeliever, but it's also serving as a warning for Israel in that moment. Because Israel had undergone some moral reformation under the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And yet their moral reformation was not repentance. And because it was not repentance, they ultimately rejected both and killed both. Okay, so Jesus is warning them by this parable. Israel, A.D. 70 is coming. Israel, you're going to go from bad to worse. Because you haven't repented, because you're going to ultimately reject me, God is going to judge Israel and judge Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroy the temple and kill thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people. And Jesus is basically saying to them in this parable, it is going to be worse for you than before I even came. And indeed it was. This is an illustration then, whether it's the man in the parable with the demons or whether it's the nation of Israel, it is an illustration to us of the dangers of hardened unbelief. Even though you may pursue personal piety and virtue and morality and be all of these outstanding things in the eyes of man. I want to close with two testimonies of simple belief in Jesus Christ. We've seen the profile of an unbeliever. We've seen the traits that mark those who have not truly repented, wanting signs from God, ignoring the resurrection, 
being condemned by those who respond without signs, and in the end, they will inevitably go from bad to worse. But there is a way to escape. There is a way to get off that list. And I share two brief stories to illustrate it. C. Jack Miller is a, a pastor, seminary professor, and an author. He wrote a little booklet called Accepting God's Forgiveness. And in the booklet, he tells the story of his, of his daughter, Barbara. Barbara left home at the age of 18 as soon as she possibly could. And she announced to her dad and her mom, these committed believers, she announced that she was not a Christian. And she began to live with one man after another. And she began to experiment and use drugs. She also supported herself through college since she'd broken all ties with her parents. She graduated with honors. She won a fellowship to work on her doctorate at Stanford. And while she was a graduate student at Stanford University, loaded down with guilt, and she had an overriding sense of the powerlessness in her life. She thought that reforming herself would solve her problems. It didn't. She later wrote her dad these words. The one thing I lacked was peace. Even though I got my life back together and was working hard, my sins and failure still bothered me. When I was living the wildlife, I acted like nothing mattered. But deep down, I was bothered, and I still am. Then I remembered you telling me that I needed to rely on Jesus' death on the cross for forgiveness. So one day, as I was thinking over something wrong that I had done, I asked Jesus to forgive me. That was the beginning of my faith. I trusted that Jesus had paid for all of my sins so that there was nothing more for me to do. No trying to make up for them and no need to keep going over them. Lynn Brownson was an insurance salesman. He was the epitome of success and acceptable moral behavior. He writes in his testimony, I thought I was a good person keeping the laws and being responsible in the community. I was also religious attending church faithfully, giving my money to good causes, and even trying to witness for Christ. But one day, I heard a sermon about being poor in spirit. It made me realize that I was not as good as I thought. I began to examine my motives. I discovered that I struggled with envy, and that I loved money, and I didn't even know it. There was no room for Christ in my life. I was too filled with self to have any room for believing in him. For the first time, I saw how much I needed Christ's forgiveness. I asked him to forgive me and trusted that his death took away my sins. My question to you is, will you join Barbara and Lynn in believing in Christ, crucified, Christ risen, the sign of all signs, and to do so without a sign other than it is written? Will you do that? Will you crave forgiveness instead of signs 
so that you can go from bad to heaven, (laughs) that you can go from worse to perfect. You can go from being an earth dweller to being a child of God, a daughter of the King, a follower of Christ, filled with purpose, filled with peace, filled with joy, knowing, knowing that you are forgiven of all of your sins that you've ever committed and glory of all glories, all of the future sins that we will ever commit that we don't even know about. Not that we will sin because grace is a license, but we know that when we do sin, he forgives us because the debt was paid. The redemption was perfect and we don't have to add anything to it. I want to just commend to you this morning simple faith in the risen Christ. Just ask Jesus to forgive you, just like Barbara did, just like Lynn did. And on the authority of the Word of God, I promise you, He will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the simplicity of the good news of a crucified, risen God man who because he is risen is now Lord of Lords, King of Kings. You have declared it to be so. He calls us to come to him empty-handed, turning from our sin, relying upon him, trusting in him, in him alone. Lord, we pray that that would happen today in our midst, that a child today would ask Jesus to forgive them. That an adult today playing church like Lynn Brownson was would ask Jesus to forgive their hypocrisy. That a runaway from the church today, Lord, like Barbara, would come to the end and and ask Jesus to forgive. I want to give you a moment now just to pray for someone you know, believer, who is lost. I want you to pray that God would give you the boldness and the courage and the love to Uh, Do what you can do to evangelize them. And then I also want you to pray that God would draw them and convict them of their need for Christ. Just take a few moments to do that, and then I will close our prayer, and our service will be closed. Father, all these things we ask now in the matchless, infinitely glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.